We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today was one of the top high school athletes of his era. He was an All-American in basketball and All-State in baseball and soccer. After a very successful career at LaSalle, he entered the coaching profession, where he oversaw winning programs at both Fairleigh Dickinson and Seton Hall. Over the last 40 years, though, he has become an icon. He broadcast his first game with Vern Lundquist in 1983, and he hasn't looked back. He's won four Emmys, as well as the prestigious Kurt Gowdy Media Award, and he was inducted into the Sports Broadcasting Hall of Fame in 2017. And he's done it all with onions. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Bill Raftery. Bill, welcome. Hey, Rich, thanks for having me. Look forward to it. Yeah, my pleasure, Bill. Well, uh, always love to just, you know, kind of jump in and get get a feel for, you know, for a guy's background. Um, you're born in Orange, New Jersey. You're you're raised in Kearney and you go to St. Cecilia's High School. Uh, tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of growing up in New Jersey in, in the in the 50s. Uh, well, I don't know if I can remember that far back now. You're putting pressure on me, but uh, <laughs> it was probably the greatest experience anybody who loves sports could have. Uh, that that was our salvation, our lifestyle uh, from morning to evening. And, uh, you know, obviously soccer from Kearney was the preeminent sport. Uh, I used to say if you didn't play soccer, you weren't considered an athlete in that town. Hmm. Uh, of course, the name for all of us was Alex Webster uh, for football, you know, great giant player and later on in life a coach. Uh, but in the early 90s with the World Cup, we had three kids on the team, uh, Harts, Mayola, and Ramos. So that'll tell you something about soccer uh, in, in that particular town. Uh, yeah. But uh, every day was, uh, you know, gather your stuff and get out. And uh, you were no burden to your parents. I mean, it was just simply uh, basketball if it was in season or baseball and, and soccer. But uh there's a playground called Tappan Street Playground. And at that time in Kearney, 
there were a lot of older guys who were very good basketball players. We just sort of hit it right as young kids and hung around. And late in the day, they'd put you in the game as a 10 or 11, 12 year older. Uh, you know, which guys would be leaving for whatever they were doing. Uh, so I, I think that was the greatest, uh, you know, reinforcement in a sense to play up and get beat up and lose and sit in the sideline for maybe an hour before your team got another shot at it. So uh, Tappan State was our little piece of heaven. Uh, right. And for nostalgia, when I'm in town, I drive by and they've taken the baskets down, which is like a heartbreak. Uh, I guess the pound on the ball upset the neighbors. So, but that that was what we did. Uh, whether uh, you know no, somebody would have an idea, we'd go play, uh, hit a pitch, and run around all afternoon in soccer. Uh, you know, we we all played Babe Ruth, PAL, Little League, and all the way up. So uh, that was our life. And and you go to St. Cecilia's. And I love reading about and, and you know, sadly, the era is kind of past, but all these, you know, kind of smallish Catholic high schools, tiny gyms, but packed. And and I, I read some funny stories about, you know, you're playing St. Mike's of Newark and you come driving in and hit a layup and there's a door right behind the rim and you kind of go through the door and the kids from St. Mike's lock the door on you. You can't get back on the court. Yeah, they wouldn't let us back in. Uh, it was actually a bank on Bloomfield Avenue, where they played. Uh, certainly was in Madison Square Garden. And uh, one end was the vault. So you'd make a layup and you'd be in the vault. And the other one, we'd go outside the door. and The ticket taker or some kids would uh, not let you back in. You'd have to fight your way back in or the coach would call a timeout <laughs> uh, to get you back in. But I, I think the sadness in all these small schools, St. James was another one in Newark. Uh, St. Al's in Jersey City was one of our big rivals, the biggest rival. They were they were stronger than we were. I think we may have gotten them once in my career. But Vinnie Ernst was the star there, who was a good friend as well. And uh, all those schools are gone. And it, it's really difficult. Uh, I played as a freshman. And you know, some of these larger schools, you may not get on the floor until you were a junior. Uh, and I think a lot of good players fall through the cracks because whether they give up the sport uh, because of the lack of playing time or fall in love with another sport, uh, I think a lot of good players uh, may not pursue uh, some of the, you know, in terms of basketball, some of uh, take advantage of the talents they have in that sport, but give up because they may play more in another sport. Right. Yeah. And, and well, and it's amazing at, at St. Cecilia's, you finished your career with almost 2,200 points. You set a New Jersey record for points in a season and points in a career. Um, and, and, and obviously you also hold the Hudson County mark. Um, that Hudson County mark stood for almost 40 years. Yeah, we were, uh, again, my, my sixth grade coach was Bob O'Connor. Who anybody from Hudson County would know, he ended up at St. Al's later. And uh, Joe Palermo was my high school coach. Uh, I was just lucky, you know, I had two outstanding guys uh, and extraordinary basketball coaches that, uh, you know, loved their profession and really didn't make any money. It was just, uh, this is something they wanted to do. This was going to be a career. They did it out of love and helping young people. And I think I was the beneficiary of 
know, some sound fundamental stuff very early in my life. Yeah. And, and you're named a high school All-American <clears throat> that year, and you choose LaSalle University, another Catholic school. And I'm just curious, was, was it going to be LaSalle all the way? Were you considering schools like St. John's or Seton Hall, a little bit more local? How did you choose uh, LaSalle? It's funny you, you mentioned St. John's. Louis always tells the story. God bless him. He's still alive at 97, I think. Yep. Um, Louis tells the story that he really never recruited me, but I sent him a letter thanking him for recruiting me, uh, which we always laugh about. But uh, then you got letters from all these schools that were like preliminary notes. And uh, my parents and high school coach wanted me to send back a note to everybody to thank them. But in those days, being raised a Catholic, we were going to go to a Catholic school. Um, that, not, not that you were forced, but that was sort of, you know, the trend in those days. So I only visited Holy Cross, Boston College, Providence, LaSalle, obviously Seton Hall being in the area and Richie Regan being ended up being my AD, but just a super guy and Georgetown. And the only non-Catholic school uh, that I visited was Maryland, and it was because of some very aggressive recruiting on their part. I think Perry Moore was the assistant, sort of overwhelmed my coach and family. And anyhow, when we did visit, our, our parish priests came with us. <laughs> so they were trying to sell religion, and uh, they were to, they had a non-denominational church, and they gave this Father Murdy a seven o'clock uh, time that he could say mass. <laughs> and uh, anyhow, they forgot to wake him. So he missed his mass uh, kind of thing on the trip. But uh, those were the schools. The best recruiting job of all was uh, Notre Dame. Uh, I just thought I never visited, but I think the challenge in my mind academically was a reach. I don't know why. It was a fear that I would let everybody down by not you know, doing the academic side of things. So, but they were just phenomenal uh, the way they went about it. And uh, anyhow, years later, doing a Notre Dame game, uh, I, I was visiting and uh, they treated me. I said, I'm coming into town. And uh, they said, uh, when are you getting in? So they picked me up and they drove me right into the football stadium like 30 years later. Uh, they would do what they would have done for a recruit. So we had a, a lot of laughs over that. But uh, anyhow, those are the schools I visited. And Duty Moore was the LaSalle coach who had an extraordinary reputation. He had done exceedingly well at Duquesne mm -hmm. uh, with Saeed Green and the Ricketts brothers. And he came to LaSalle and uh, you know, sort of was revered in basketball circles. And I think that was the big influence, plus the visit of my parents, uh, to the campus. They felt comfortable there. And, uh, you know, I think it's sometimes you're just destined to do what you're maybe pushed in a direction and appreciate it later. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's obviously back in the era when freshmen couldn't play on the freshman Correct. team, you light it up, you score like almost 400 points in a, in a, you know, truncated freshman season. And then yeah, we played five teams, which, we played about 12 or 13 games, I think, as I remember. Excuse me. And, and the, the greatest thing about it, uh, you had your own coach. Uh, they ran the same things as the varsity, but 
it was like a comfort zone. You could grow up another year. And nowadays, uh, they come for one year and leave. So that's how things have changed over the years. But Charlie Greenberg was our freshman coach who had played with goal on the national championship team. Uh, so we were in good hands, and we had a really good team. Robert McLaughlin, another Jersey guy who ended up leaving school, I think he had like 37, 38 points in the freshman varsity game. Hmm. Uh, we were pretty good as freshmen, as a team. Yeah. So uh, anyhow, the, the other reason, uh, the they took me on my recruiting trip to a LaSalle-St. Joe's game when the Big Five was on fire. Yeah. And so nine, ten thousand 10,000 in the palestra, screaming bands, banners. Uh, there was something exciting about it. And to, the add-on, I guess, was I got to meet no Tom Gola, who at that time was with the Knicks. And, a, you know, LaSalle, All-American. I think three of his four years, he was the All-American team. And they won his junior year and lost to Bill Russell his senior year. But uh, those are little combined influences, I guess, as to why you pick a place. Sure. Yeah. And I, I read that um, somebody was asking, you know, your favorite arenas of all time, you know, whether to play in or visit or whatever. And you said, you know, Palestra hands down. That was your home court, right? Yeah. You know, it's one of those things. It's, it's bittersweet. Uh, some good nights and some bad nights in that place, you know. Sure. Uh, you know, we, oh, those those teams in Philly were uh, talented and, uh, you know, Hall of Fame coaches, you know, McCluskey, Litwax, Severance. Uh, who am I leaving? Oh, Jack Ramsey uh, at St. Joe's. So, you know, not only were the teams good, but you had phenomenal teaching on the bench. Sure. And you, you played against some some uh, some great competition. I mean, you, you played against Nate Thurman at Bowling Green, Rick Barry at Miami, Paul Silas at Creighton. Any any of those games stand out, you know, from your career? Well, uh, the, the one against Creighton stood out because, uh, you know, I sort of took credit for it. But it was a combination. Uh, Paul, I held Paul Silas. I think he still has the record for rebounds in the palestra for a visiting player. I think he had like 30-some-odd rebounds in the game. So well, they used to tease me. They did a great job checking Paul out, you know. Uh, but <laughs> that, that game stands out. And, and beating Thurman, and we actually beat them, Bowling Green. I think St. Joe's beat him in the first game of the Quaker City. And I, I'm assuming we lost, but I can't remember to whom. And in the consolation game, we played Bowling Green, which, you know, you, Nate later becomes one of the NBA top centers and won the championship with Golden State and uh, with the Warriors. And Comives had a nice career, outstanding shooter, lefty. Uh, used to blow his sneakers out. He stopped for that jump shot so quickly. Uh, later played with the Knicks for a while. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I interviewed for this program about a year ago, Phil Villapiano, another Jersey guy. And uh, I said, you know, how does a guy from the Jersey shore end up at Bowling Green? And he said, I would go with my dad to the NIT in the city. And he said, I watched Nate Thurman play for Bowling Green and I saw their fans and I said, I got to go there. That's how that, that's how Villapiano ended up at Bowling Green watching Nate Thurman. Oh my God. What a career he had right with Oakland. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting at, at the end of your career. So you get so your senior year. You're the captain. You guys are good every year. You're, you're the captain. You go to the NIT, which back then was a very big deal. And uh, while you lose to St. Louis uh, University in the first round, your coach, Duty Moore, 
has you show around a broadcaster from CBS named Bob Wolf, who's going to be calling the game. And so you kind of lead him around. And at the end of the conversation, he says, you know, when you're done with all this, you should consider broadcasting. That's kind of how you got your start, like thinking about this as a career down the road. Yeah, we and he came on a Thursday and Friday um, now to do his homework. And uh, duty asked me to have dinner with him or, you know, spend some time. And when he was leaving, that's exactly what he said. Years later, uh, not not meant to, in a reciprocal way, but I, I had a broadcaster's and announcer's camp, a broad, broadcaster and journalistic camp. And Bob Wolf ran the uh, the communications aspect. Jerry Eisenberg ran the journal or the the writing aspect of the camp. Uh, and it was great to spend five days every summer with Bob years later. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, he had a big influence and just a gentleman. And then the year, I guess, 69, when the next one, I spent, I went to 41 home games and 18 away games. And I used to see Bob uh, write notes. I wasn't on the air, but I would just write notes about what was going on and hand them to him. So uh, he had a great impact. He was a gentleman, class act, and uh, obviously, I think Ford Frick Hall of Fame announcer. Yeah, oh, that's that's cool. Um, and and so you you wrap up here. You're not willing to give up basketball just yet. You get drafted by the Knicks. You go to camp. You mentioned Tom Gola from LaSalle. He's there. He's he's an established veteran with them. Um, you don't make the team. Was it was that a disappointment, or did you kind of expect that that was going to be the outcome? Richie Garum was another great player, too. Both of them uh, end up in the Hall of Fame of basketball. And I think Richie's uh, name is, is in the rafters at the Garden. Uh, but... Uh, I got cut, and they those two were coming for the afternoon. I got cut at lunch, and uh, went went back to the facility, grabbed my gear, and as I'm walking out, those two are in for the new practice. So uh, Richie, this uh, both of them said, "Where are you going?" I said, "Well, I got cut, you know, mustering up all the bravado I could." And uh, Richie said, "Well, gee, I'm sorry to hear." But if you need tickets, call Tommy Gola. So it was like the reality of it. And, uh, you know, then we the only thing we had was the Eastern League. Uh, There wasn't an ABA. And, uh, you know, if you weren't going to play in that league, Europe wasn't as, you know, familiar or tantalizing in those days as it later became. And I got home. I was a recreation director in Carney. And, uh, Bob Shields, the AD at Fairley, uh, one of the referees of the game worked in our department, Pete Carson. And uh, Bob was lamenting the fact that he was going from soccer to basketball. He was a lacrosse coach and AD, could you imagine? (laughs) And uh, lamenting the fact that basketball was starting and he didn't know if he had the energy to do it. And, And Pete told him that I was home. And that's how I ended up. he called me, said, would you like to be the coach? So I did that part-time for two years until I got a master's. And then I went up to FDU Madison uh, for five years. So I was very lucky in those days. It was like an empty period in terms of alternate plans in basketball. Uh, the Eastern League, as I mentioned, was like a, a killer weekend league. And 
wasn't as attractive, but uh, some great uh, great players came out of there, and a lot of them ended up in the NBA as well. George sure. Laney, for one, uh, and my teammate Frank Corris uh, was a number two draft pick by the Warriors. He never played in the NBA. He made more money at Merrill Lynch than he would have at the NBA in those days. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, so, okay, so you go to Fairleigh Dickinson. You're the basketball coach. You're also the golf coach. Um, yeah. And every year, you're there for five years. Every year, the team gets better. You know, losing record, then losing record, then all of a sudden winning record. By the end, you're 18 and six. Um and are you thinking, you know, at that point, are you thinking, I think I can do this at a bigger, at a bigger school? I didn't, I didn't think anything of it, but I, I knew that, not that we had run out of steam, but, uh, we, you know, all things, uh, Division three, no scholarships. Uh, I think we could give aid of some sort, but not, not a scholarship. Sure. Uh, and it just was, you know, I, I didn't think there was any any sort of seal there you know there was a ceiling i should say i didn't think we could exceed where we were and just sort of uh ended up going to converse for that one year which kept me in touch we you know we basically went to college campuses and at night you know take the coach out so it kept me in in the mood and that's the year i was traveling with bob wolf too yeah. so it really gave me a whole different look and you know, concept of what the bigger world was all about in basketball. Sure. Oh, okay. That's interesting. So you worked for Converse that year. Okay, cool. And then, and then Richie Regan, who you mentioned earlier is, has been the head coach at Seton Hall. He steps aside from his coaching duties, you know, becomes full-time AD. You come in as the head coach. And this is, this is obviously, you know, a decade plus before the big East. So Seton Hall is something of an independent um, you know, at times they're in like kind of a, a loosely configured league, like the New York, New Jersey seven, um, mm-hmm. but a really interesting schedule to tell me about, you know, kind of taking over Seton Hall and what you were thinking going into that. Uh, you know, Richie was the assistant AD then later, a year later or two to become the AD. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they had restrictions on their schedule. They, you know, because of the 61 scandal. Uh, they weren't permitted to play in public arenas and, uh, you know, limited travel and whatever um, controls that the school could have to best serve the, the uh, student athlete. So I came in and things were opening up and we started playing in the garden four or five times a year. And we played everybody in my 11 years. When I say everybody, uh, you could look it up. I mean, the biggest names in college basketball. Uh, would come in and love play the garden, and we would never return the game. Uh, it was just, you know, we were fortunate enough because I knew we might beat somebody in the garden, but I knew if I went to Chapel Hill, I wasn't going to beat Dean there, you know, or go to Vegas and beat Tart there. Right. So, uh, you know, as as we started uh, the second year, we had a really great freshman class uh, that was sat out and. Uh, those five kids, John Ramsey would have been the biggest name. He was drafted twice, I mean, number two by Indiana and the Knicks. And he ended up uh, making more money in Europe those early 70s. And he ended up staying there uh, throughout his uh, basketball career. So th- those kids were the foundation. And as the years went on, uh, I-, I remember the first year 
we were playing at Wagner and Gary Cavallo was on that team with Mel Knight. Mel Knight was injured, but those were the two names. Uh, Gary was a great baseball player as well. And I remember at the end of the year saying, you know, I don't know where this thing is going to go at Seton Hall, but you, you guys are gonna, were the foundation. And it wasn't a very good record, but just the way they comported themselves and gave of themselves and, you know, the dedication they had uh, was very rewarding. And uh, as we all know, uh, people, well, the record's not good, but, you know, they don't understand the other stuff. So I used to tell them uh, they were the foundation. And as it turned out, they, as well as all those other teams, were the foundation for the opportunity to go to the Big East, where sure. kids became competitive. And, you know, Dave was looking for a team in the metropolitan area after Rutgers turned it down, basically. And Holy Cross was another team that turned it down because that was out of the area. They had St. John's. They didn't have Villanova at that time. Uh, they were to come a year later. Uh, but all those kids were the reason that, uh, you know, Seton Hall was admissible, basically. Uh, and the philosophy that we had, P.J. inherited. Uh, but when I say philosophy, not, not mine, but we really weren't invested in basketball at all. And P.J. paid the price the next couple of years he's playing these Titans and then you know his fortitude and recruiting uh, just lifted the program to heights that you know none of us ever thought would would come but the one, one thing Dave used to tell us his ambition was that every team at some point would make the final four uh, well Providence ends up the year before going to the final four and seeing all the next year and those were the two teams that really struggled uh, within the Big East prior to that. So Dave got the accomplishment he was searching for. Yeah. And Dave, of course, Dave Gavitt, who coached at PC and then, and then the first commissioner of the Big East. And you coached against him. What was it like coaching against him and, and guys like Marvin Barnes and, and Ernie DiGregorio? Well, it wasn't fun, I assure you. Uh, <laughs> We, I think our first TV game, national TV game, Don Crickey was doing it for NBC. Mm-hmm. And it was an afternoon game. And they they came in and the game was, I used to say, the game was over in warm-ups. They just, um, just <laughs> emasculated us. And I often wonder how Crickey got through 40 minutes of watching that. Uh, but uh, they were just a really, you know, Stakem's another guy along with Dick Gregorio and Barnes that were, was a really talented kid, played in the NBA for quite a while as well. Sure, uh, Celtics. Coaching against Dave was, uh, you learned a lot. Let's put it that way. And, yeah. And I think that part of us, again, being admitted to the league was his respect for Richie and Seton Hall. And there's always been a great connection between Providence and Seton Hall. Later on, we had a president come from Providence to be the uh, the the president, Father Peterson, at Seton Hall during PJ's era. Hmm. So there was every time that we would play Providence at home, uh, there was always a function uh, between amongst the Providence and Seton Hall alums after the game that Richie would always say it's a requirement uh, to make sure you attend it. Hmm. Interesting. And, and that first year, you play against a coach at Army named Bob Knight, and you win. And and later on, uh, down the road, 
ultimately Mike Krzyzewski becomes the coach at Army. It seemed like you had a winning record against him, too. What was it like playing against Knight? Well, you know, we all respected what they did up there. I mean, Army, you know, Army now is, is, is you know, I guess middle of the road, Division One. Then Bob could play against anybody. Sure. Uh, that's what was they, they basketball players as well as representing our country. And, uh, you know, you add the comp- competitive level and uh, you know, just the over aggressive style of Bob, which came, was right up their alley. Uh, they were just a difficult team to, to compete against. And uh, I guess I was lucky because he left that next year for Indiana, so I didn't have to go against him. Uh, but uh, Mike, Mike came in and Mike did the same things uh, pretty much. Uh, of course, later on, the, the, the amazing thing about Mike Krzyzewski is uh, his adjustments over the years. From that style that he had heard it from Bob uh, to Duke, where you had to get national recruits, and then all of a sudden it was the one and dones. And uh, he he just made incredible adjustments during his coaching career, uh, and obviously the success we all know about. But you know, you don't you don't really when, when you're playing teams, you don't really your preparation is you know, the same, no matter who the guy on the other bench is. And when the game starts, you're immersed in your team and what they're doing and what they could do better. Uh, so you don't look down and say, you know, I hope this guy's respecting me. You want to beat his backside if you can. Sure. Sure. And you, and you're at those years at Seton Hall, but, you know, basically the decade of the seventies into the very early eighties. Um, that's when, you know, all these Big East, you know, the big time, the Raleigh Massiminos, the John Thompsons, you know, kind of one by one, they're coming into the conference. Um, and as you mentioned, you're, you know, you're also playing this national schedule. You're playing Frank McGuire at South Carolina with Alex English, Dunleavy and Brian Winters. You know, you mentioned you're playing North Carolina and Dean Smith with, you know, Kupchak and Phil Ford. Um, and uh, and I, I love also at the same time, you know, some local guys like Valvano. And Iona and uh, Dick Vitale in Detroit are coming out of Jersey. Yeah, yeah, they were good in Rutgers, obviously, with Tom Young up in uh, you know the finals in '76, and you know they were undefeated going into the Final Four, and I think Michigan bopped them pretty good. But yeah, the local teams were as hard to play against as those teams you you know you Princeton we used to play, but but I I, I think the uh, the reason for Dave coming up with that uh, concept, which later became the Big East, was he played these teams. They, he used to bring Louisville into his place. Mm-hmm. Uh, teams of stature, Carolina into his place at Providence. And he realized that these teams locally were just as good as these nationally, national teams. And, and, and the foresight of Dave was, he just knew we didn't have any marketing of the programs. And that being, if you could put them together and and have that, uh, let the world know how good it was and uh, the blessings of our Lord, uh, ESPN begins the same year that the league starts, 79. Yep. And he's a, you know, it's a marriage that was just, it's just incredible as it turned out. And fast forward, you jump to the new Big East, 
you know, the last 10 years and FS1 starts and right. that, that Big East conference as well. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. So, you know, Dave, Dave's, uh, I asked him once, when did you start thinking of uh, the uh, concept of the Big East? He said in the early 70s, he used to write names of teams down that he thought would be a great league. So he was playing on this thing six years before it started and and probably uh, probably four years before, five years before he left coaching. Uh, so it wasn't, he didn't wake up one morning and say, look, this is a great idea. In fact, I believe he flew to Italy with the St. John's team to try and talk Lou. They were going for a summer trip. Mm-hmm. And he, I think Lou to try and talk Louie into Louie was so powerful and so important, you know, have that hook in New York uh, that Dave, Dave went over there with the St. John's team. Uh, you know, the same thing with John Thompson and Frank Rienza. Uh, you know, they didn't go to Europe with them, but just to make sure they and Jake Krauthammel at Syracuse, those were the linchpins that, you know, he had to get them uh, before all the other pieces would fit. Sure. And must have been. And when, when they approached you guys, you said, absolutely, we're in? Well, I'll tell you, I was in practice, and I used to tease Richie. By 5.30, Richie Regan was home having his first scotch. <laughs> and uh, the manager came in about uh, 6.30 and said, Mr. Regan wants to see you when you finish. And I, Tommy Slattery said, what's he doing here? Because he usually was gone by then, you know? Sure. And uh, went in, and Richie tells me that he just came – from the Sheridan LaGuardia, where these different men met, Crowth Hamill, Rienza, uh, Jack Kaiser, uh, forget who else was there. Oh, John Toner from UConn. Mm. And John, the real major uh, dominant guy in the athletics area, the NCAA, he was very respected. And we were one of the teams that was invited, Richie was one of the ADs invited. So he's sitting there, and I, I realize our budget, our philosophy, our outlook, uh, so to speak, uh, it was very limited. And he's telling me we're going to join this league. And I looked at him, I said, are you nuts? Like, we got no shot. Because we could play them once a year, but twice a year, you know, that was painful. Sure. Uh, but that's how it started. And I remember saying, Richie, look, you know, for me, these next couple of years, it's going to be a struggle. But for Seton Hall, you got to do it. I mean, this is, you know, just we all had that ACC kind of uh, understanding of what the public wanted, uh, what the public was after. And, and ACC, with all their success and marketing, uh, was all that uh, the Big East needed. And obviously, it turned out that way. Yeah. So, that, yeah, so that's interesting. So <clears throat> just as the Big East is kind of starting to ramp up, that's when you step aside and decide to go into broadcasting. Uh, I left in this in the fall. I had, We've been in practice two weeks. And Dave Gabbitt called and said, look, you've got two days. I'm not an out. He used to be the color analyst. And uh, he said, I'm not going to do it. And I had mentioned to him along the way, I said, you know, Dave, someday I might like to do that. Never, I thought I was going to be John Wooden, which certainly didn't turn out. But uh, anyhow, he called in uh, 81, uh, late October 81. He said, if you want to do it, you got to let me know in two days. 
And that's basically, uh, I just decided, you know what? And I could make this thing work. And Hadi was there, who was great strategist and big influence on us as a staff. And he took over. It was actually 9-0. and He had beaten Notre Dame and Houston up in the Meadowlands. That was that was going to be our first year in the Meadowlands, by the way. Mm. And uh, the big step up, uh, as it turned out, when Dave wanted everybody in a big building, uh, not an on-campus McDonough or Walsh, you know? Sure. And uh, at any rate, uh, Hottie was 9-0, and and any three or four kids became ineligible, and they decided at the end of the year that, you know, let's look around. And, you know, PJ had done a nice job at Wagner and was very well thought of. So he came in, and then he struggled for a couple of years, as we noted earlier, because of, you know, they really didn't have a, an idea or a concept of what it would take. And Dave came in and told the president that, uh, look, this is what you have to do, what you have to spend. And, and that's when everything came around for Seton Hall and PJ. Sure. I think he had four or five NCAs in a row, though, which is overlooked. You know, everybody thinks that that final four. In fact, our daughter Christy went uh, to Seton Hall, and, and all four years uh, the team went to the NCAA tournament. So she had a pretty good run, too. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, so you so you go into broadcasting, and and you know obviously you you've been paired with a number of guys you know over the years. I mean, literally a who's who. Um, but you're first paired with Vern Lundquist uh, in February of '83, and I love his line. Uh, the, the game you guys are calling is in Columbia, South Carolina, for that uh, well well known rivalry, Idaho and South Carolina. <laughs> Uh, Idaho known more for potatoes in those days. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it, I think the combination of being Frank McGuire uh, and going out with him the night before, uh, it just, there was a, a comfort zone I think we both had, an enjoyment of life, and uh, I guess you can interpret that as not minding having a cocktail here and there, but uh, <laughs> at any rate, we, uh, we had, and then I think Vern always tells the story. We we were so good that they we we didn't get together for another five years or something like that. I'm telling that story, but uh, I learned a lot from Vern. Uh, you know the timing and say you know he he knew he had a great way of saving a story, uh, even if it, it was even if he didn't use the story, if the opportunity didn't show, he wouldn't use it, but. He could seize the moment uh, to relate something that really fit in the program that particular day. But just his presence and relaxation, uh, he loved the kids, he loved the game. Uh, so all of those things uh, made it uh, you know, a joy to meet him on a Friday and do the game Saturday. Sure. What were some of the, what were some of the arenas that you loved going into uh, to, to call games in? Well, they moved us around pretty good in those days, you know, Arizona or uh, a lot of Big Ten venues. Mm-hmm. Um, we we didn't do – I don't think we did a Duke game together uh, until later, uh, or, you know, mostly in the tournament, I would say. Sure. But uh, we both loved the old buildings, you know, Williams, out, uh, Gallagher, Iba at Oklahoma State, MacArthur Court, 
Uh, I didn't do a game with him there, but I did a game at, for CBS up there in Oregon. But, uh, you know, most of our really like the, the six or eight games we would do in the tournament uh, where, where we got to, those sites were a little bit different because they were usually in public arenas. Sure. Sure. And, and, and some great uh, uh, tournament games you, you guys called the George Mason Yukon regional final game, which was just at the time, just shocking a team like George Mason making the final four. What was that one like to call? Well, they had a great week. You know, I think they beat Carolina, Michigan state, Wichita state and Yukon. Yeah. Uh, which is incredible and again, a lot of people say a lot of games fade in your memory uh, but that to me was like one of the first like teams that people would say had no shot to make the final four and they did it you know Wichita State and Butler came along after that and, you know Florida Atlantic this year so I, I think those teams help set the tone for everybody when they begin practice that, you know, everybody's got a shot here. You never know, uh, you know, get through your, your tournament, and your league tournament, and who knows, you, you might get an opportunity to, to excel and make the final four. But uh, no, it was, uh, it, it, it's really interesting that weekend. I mean, I think we were all in shock, uh, you know, uh, each game, they got closer. Uh, it was just a highlight in a lot of ways. It was in Washington, D.C., uh, which Mason, you know, had some home court advantage. And uh, Larinaga being a guy we knew from Providence and uh, Archbishop Malloy, uh, there was a connect there. And, of course, Calhoun was in his heyday. Uh, sure. So uh, it was just one of those weekends you'll probably never forget. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, back around that time, also, you called one of the most insane games the the uh, what was it? UConn Syracuse in the big East tournament that I think went to six overtimes. How draining is that as an announcer? <laughs> that, that was another highlight. Uh, that was with McDonough and Billis. Uh, that, that was, uh, you know, the two, three zone <laughs> at the end of the game. Uh, there was only one kid on the floor that had any energy. I forget his name. He was jumping up and down. All the other four guys at Syracuse, they couldn't lift their arms. They were so tired. But uh, what one uh, one comment the next day, some one of the writers said, uh, you know, what's memorable about the game? I said, well, it was the first time I was out that late. The game ended around 2 in the morning, I think. Uh, it's the first time I was at that late in New York where my wife wasn't mad at me. So uh, <laughs> we, we didn't have not much entertainment by the time we left the garden. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even, even New York, the bars closed at some point. Um, right. And, and in terms of, you know, drama, you call, I, th- I think your first final four on TV, you had done a ton of radio final fours, but your first final four on TV is 2016 with Jim Nance. And that happens to be the one where Chris Jenkins of Villanova hits the game winning shot to win the title over North Carolina. What was that like? Uh, you know, having done so many game, Villanova games in particular, um, just the way it, it ended to the right of us and we couldn't hear it, but uh, Chris was saying arch, arch, which we found out later. And uh, 
it was actually a play they had worked on. I, I always call it a slap back or give back, some people call, or, you know, where you dribble the def- at the defender and it opens up a little bit and you slap the ball back or deliver the ball. Sure. Uh, you know, just a- a- anytime a kid makes a play, uh, it's pretty exciting for me. Uh, and I feel badly for the opponent. Uh, you know, the Carolina, the, the Page kid made a great play. It's, it's like insane what these kids do at the end of games. It's uh, wonderful. They'll never forget the rest of their lives, and it unifies them, too. I think they call Chris Big Smooth, and boy, did Smooth deliver. Yeah, and that's and one of the most – one of the enduring images of that is, you know, here's Jay Wright, as smooth and successful a head coach as there's been in the past, you know, couple decades. The kid hits the shot. Jenkins hits the shot. And he's just, I've never seen a coach react so matter-of-factly. He kind of watches, sees it goes in, and just walks straight down the line to shake hands with uh, with uh, Roy Williams. No, you know, exultation or cheering or anything. Do, do you re- recall I, I think, seeing that? I, I do, exactly. I think he was numb. And I think the other point is, like, maybe there's time for them. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I really, I, I talked to him about it, but I think numb that they made it and – you know, like in a way, he was looking up at a clock too. You know, uh, so I, I, I think it was making sure this game was over. Right. Uh, but it was, it was, it was something that stood out. No question about it. His yeah. response. Yeah, um, that's funny. <laughs> I also, I was, you and Vern were calling a game. This is like an early round game in the tournament. It's Iowa versus Northwestern State from North Natchitoches, Louisiana. Oh, yeah. And the, and so Northwestern state has this dramatic comeback. They beat Iowa, which obviously is a massive upset. And you two are kind of stunned because at the beginning of the game, the Northwestern state guys, you know, trot off the floor as teams do to go back to the locker room right before, you know, the anthem, whatever. And the coach stayed. Is that? <laughs> yeah. And Chad did a radio show. Talk to us. Yeah. <laughs> And afterwards, you guys say to him, so your guys are in the locker room before the game and you're out here doing a radio spot. And he's like, look, what am I going to tell them five minutes before a game against Iowa? You know, there's nothing for me to say. I'd rather pocket the 25 bucks for the local interview. McKay, right? I think McKay was the coach. I'm not saying it right, but he was an interesting guy. He he really worked hard to make sure his kids got not that everybody doesn't do this, but he was more interested in them getting through school than an MBA career. Mm-hmm. And they played. I mean, they were unbelievable. Uh, Steve Alford was on the bench. I think he was numb after that game, but it was to the left of us, a corner jumper. Goodness. Yeah. He uh, had some great memories. Yeah. Oh, I mean, just, you know, just such a great, great era for, you know, for basketball. Um, and obviously you're, you know, as I alluded to in the introduction, you know, you've got some of the great, catchphrases and phrases in in basketball history um i i was watching an interview of ian eagle who you were paired with you know kind of uh uh over the years and you were calling nets games together and that was the first time i think it was a kevin edwards jumper where you yelled out onions and Ke- and yeah. eagle just kind of looked at you like what does that mean and uh i think everybody started to figure it out <laughs> i bowed a bird he's got some memory uh, yeah, we did the net games for maybe maybe eight years we were together. Uh, so you multiply that by 
you know, 55 to 60 with, uh, you know, the national games being on another hookup. But I uh, love being with him. He's just a special guy, obviously. And uh, his memory is extraordinary. And I, I, the Nets were not doing well in that particular era. Uh, later on, we had a great, great time when the Jason Kidd came aboard in the early 2000s. And they made two Final Fours or two NBA championships, I should say, finals. Uh, yeah, it was crazy where we were shocked. We got They won a game, kind of, and uh, uh, sort of an apt description for a guy stepping up. Kevin, like a gentle guy, uh, been active at Del uh, Polo since he graduated, too, or since he left the NBA, I should say, as part of the athletic department. But, uh, yeah, a lot of fond memories with the Nets and Bird. We, uh, we, we had uh, the ups and downs of any career of, uh, because of the Nets, uh, it was uh, early '80s. They beat the Sixers first round after the Sixers had won the championship. They were, we're talking '84, '83, '84, and then the Dolder hit. Uh, but uh, anyhow, it was uh, a great opportunity. Uh, Joe Tab was the one that gave me the opportunity in the early '80s, and I was fortunate enough to do their games for 23 years. And the latter part with Bird, which was, uh, you know, just watching him blossom as an announcer and a personality. Yeah, yeah. Eagle is uh, he's great. Um, <laughs> I saw a great. Uh, I think I think at your induction speech for the Hall of Fame, you, you told this story, and I loved it that uh, that apparently on some of the telecasts, you were you were uh, uh, criticizing Daryl Dawkins. You know, he played for the Nets for a short while. You were criticizing his shooting. And he he confronts you in the locker room. Basically says, you know, my girlfriend and I are watching, and you know we've got a gun, and you and you know I might just use it. And you said, if you shoot a gun like you shoot a basketball, I like my chances. <laughs> and then I ran to the locker room with him chasing me with a towel, looking <laughs> away. But uh, talk about personality, he was a charming guy. He really was. Uh, could have been maybe one of the greats, uh, which shows signs in games where how good he could be and then sort of relax a little bit. He was just a happy-go-lucky guy. Yeah. I, I interviewed uh, World B Free for this show, and he was just telling me some great stories. And at one point, World B says to me, and then he credits Daryl Dawkins for the line, he said, you know, do you need any more stories? Because if you do, I'll make them up. And I started laughing, and he <laughs> said, that's a Dawkins line. <laughs> oh, God. He was something else. Uh, yeah. Spirit. Uh, happy go lucky. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and and of course, I have to ask you about the night in Pittsburgh in '88. Jerome Lane gets the feed from Sean Miller and just comes cruising in, and it was just the perfect confluence of a great pass, a great catch, and just a ferocious slam dunk. The, the backboard shatters. Speaking of Daryl Dawkins, the backboard Ooh. shatters, and there's a pause, and uh, Mike Gorman says something, and then you say, "Send it in, Jerome." Uh, yeah. tell, tell me a little bit about that moment because it's obviously become so iconic at this point. Well, when I see Sean Miller, he always says, I made you famous, you know, but, <laughs> uh, yes, but, uh, no, just, I guess the spontaneity of, a, of the situation is what comes out and you, you know, you just don't have any concept preconceived notion of what you're going to say, but I, I didn't realize the legs that this, this story would have. 
people over the years telling me they got a piece of glass, uh, the amount of people that were at the game, they could have filled the garden and they only had like 5,000 seats at that place, you know, like what was it, McCluskey Hall, whatever they called it in those days. It was the old gym, you know? Yeah. But uh, anyhow, it was, it was something special. And, you know, Jerome, in those days, he was a big, strong kid. And nowadays, you know, with all the weightlifting, he would be considered, well, not an average body, but he had a great frame, obviously, but big, strong kid. And he had no idea that that was going to transpire as it did. Uh, but uh, it, it was uh, Mike and I had to fill almost 45 minutes, I think, uh, because they didn't have the roll-in baskets in those days. They had to go in, get it bored, put it up. It was to, for Don Nelson came in and filled in with us for quite a while. Uh, we went through every team in the league. He was the Golden State coach then. He was just out there looking at players like uh, Lane and Charles Smith and, and company. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It, it did. There was, you did have a ton of time to fill. That's amazing. Um, and, and, and looking back over your career, I mean, you know, obviously coaching, you're coaching against a guy, but, you know, for the 40 years you've been broadcasting games, obviously you chat with coaches, you know, before the game, probably also after the game, who are some of the guys that you just really enjoy, you know, kind of shooting the breeze with? Well, anybody who wants to go out really, <laughs> uh, nowadays, a lot of, if you, the away team has a charter. Uh, so they're gone. And a lot of times the home, home, uh, coach has got recruits in. Uh, so it's usually you and your gang, you know, production crew and on air talent. But, sure. uh, no, this, you know, of course, going back, you know, Louie always went to Dante's and Roly always found an Italian restaurant. Uh, you know, Jim Beheim, if they won, had his places in Syracuse. Uh, but, it, 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 times have changed really. A lot of guys like to go back and watch the game, which, uh, you know, never took place in the early days. Usually it was film and they'd get it the next day. Uh, so times have changed. You just understand it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and across all these years, obviously, you know, you're looking, you know, back over, you know, kind of 60 plus years of, of either coaching, well, playing, coaching and, and calling games. Who are some of the players that just stand out? I mean, you know, there's going to be the obvious ones, but are there any that, you know, might surprise some people where you just thought, my God, this guy's unbelievable to watch? Yeah, you know, it's it's, the Biggies became a first name league. Uh, You know, when you think of it, it was, you know, Eddie would be Pickney and Chris would be Mullen. Patrick would be Patrick. Uh, Same with the coaches. It was a first name league, Roly, John, Jimmy. Uh, in fact, I used to drive McDonough nuts when Syracuse would play Connecticut. I would say, Jimmy's got to, you know, whatever. Jimmy's going to put so-and-so in. And Sean would go, which Jimmy are you talking about? You know, with that <laughs> voice. But, uh, no, like, you know, it's, it's funny, like Jared Hass jumps out as we're talking. You know, he was a Kansas player that played hard and uh, got to know him a little bit. Of course, now it's Stanford. But, uh, there's so many great kids that come to mind. And, you know, Danny Calandrillo's one close to my heart because I was with him three years at Seton Hall and uh, saw what he was able to do uh, his senior year, becoming Big East Player of the Year. Uh, but, you know, it, it would be slating a lot of people, you know. Uh, sure. So many guys. Freddie Brown comes to mind, you know, that heartbreaker. 
against uh, Carolina, uh, yep. you know, when he passed, I believe, to Worthy. Uh, I still think that he felt they were in a 2-3 zone and Worthy, uh, you know, just was in the wrong spot, kind of, or the right spot for Carolina. But uh, there's so many good kids that you get to know a little bit and you're happy when they do well and uh, excel in life as well. If an MBA's in their future, you know, that they do well in that level too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned Fred Brown. I was just having this conversation with somebody and we were talking about great redemption stories in sports. And I said, I don't know if it's the greatest, but the one that pops into my mind is, yeah, he, he creates the, you know, the, the critical turnover at the end of the game against UNC. And then two years later, that embrace with John Thompson on the sidelines yeah. as they're wrapping up the title. It's a pretty cool moment. I'm not a Georgetown fan, but it's a pretty cool moment. It is. Now, speaking of Georgetown, Sleepy Floyd comes to mind. He's forgotten by a lot of people. That was one of the early great players that they had. Number one draft pick by the Nets, if I'm not mistaken. But, uh, yeah, there's so many good kids that, you know, you've been able to watch and see them, ex- you know, just do exceedingly well. It's, uh, uh, you know, the heartbreaks, too, are, are some of the things that are close to, to those of us that are lucky to announce games. You know, we're you know, kid either makes a mistake or misses a free throw, and uh, you know, does something that costs their team. And those, those are the kids. You know, uh, it's not a it, they made a mistake basically, or it didn't go their way, and you just have compassion for them. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, well, look. Oh, one last question I have for you. Uh, you've obviously, you know, we, we've talked about working with Sean McDonough and and Mike Gorman and Ian Eagle and Jim Nance and and Vern Lundquist. If there was one announcer out there, one guy who you just haven't had a chance to work with, who would it be? The next one. Uh, you know, they're all so good. And, and I think what I do and other guys that do it, you know, your responsibility is to be part of a team and mesh with that individual. And obviously, if you do more games with one guy, uh, you know, you can feel that, you know, through the screen or through the announcing. So sure. it's, it's like they're, they're all such pros that it would be unfair to denigrate anybody or single out one particular person. And yet I get identified mostly with Vern and mostly with uh, Ian and mostly with Jim. Uh, but that doesn't speak of uh, some of the other guys I've worked with. Bird and I had a list, and I have no idea where when we wrote down all the guys I had worked with, and they were virtually about a hundred, believe it or not, and uh, just you know all world class announcers that uh, may be forgotten now by others, but were, were so good to me, particularly in my formative days. Right, and uh, and and when you went into the Hall of Fame in 2017, I noticed in your class among others were Leslie Visser. Brent Musburger and Chris Berman and Musburger and you called some games uh, on the NBA, right? Yeah, yeah, Grant, he was great to me. We did some NBA games too. Uh, we did some playoff games back in the old days uh, when Piston, the Pistons were the team, you know, with Chuck Daly and Isaiah and Lambeer and Mahorn and, you know, Joe Dumars. And then yeah, later on, ESPN got in the mix, and I was still with them. We did a Celtic game uh, in the playoffs against the Pacers, if I'm not mistaken. 
but uh, there, they, you know, there's a legendary individual. Got to know Chris Berman when I was doing a lot of ESPN stuff up there. And, uh, just incredible presence on the air and flair for, uh, you know, the, the, the right expression at the right time. So, yeah, there's some, some pretty good people out there. Yeah, that's cool. Bill Raftery, I have to tell you, thank you so much for, for taking the time to come on uh, Chasing Hardware. I could, I could listen to these stories all day, you know, both from the coaching career, uh, but also from the, you know, the legendary broadcasting career. A couple things stand out. I, I saw the the ex CEO of of CBS, Les Moonves, said that your excitement for the game is infectious, and your career has proven uh, that you're one of the most original and beloved broadcasters and people in all of sports. Um, and Sean McManus said there are few people in this industry who are recognized as being at the top of their game, as well as being universally respected and liked by colleagues, coaches, players, and fans. Um, so I thought there was a hundred other quotes similar to that, but uh, you know, great testament to uh, to you know everything you've done uh, over the years uh, in and around basketball. Well, it's very nice for them. Uh, there's there's so many good people in this profession, but uh, their words are. Uh, I'm thankful for those nice comments. Sure. Well, Bill, thank you again for coming on Chasing Hardware. Really appreciate the time. All right, Rich. Take care. Good luck to you, and look forward to seeing you. Awesome. Take care. Okay, Rich, take care. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. It feels like life. Come on. Life is like Life is like Life is like what it is. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's U-N-I-F-Y-D healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.